Good evening, everybody. My name's Larry and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I want to thank you guys for inviting me out to be here. And uh, I think you guys have done a heck of a job here. Uh, to anybody that's been a, a coffee maker or a chair setter upper or anybody that's had anything to do with this roundup, my hat's off to Well, I didn't even have a hat, but, uh, you know, if I did have a hat, it'd be off to you. And uh, you guys have done a heck of a job, you know, and... Um, I feel very privileged to be out here with you and to be a part of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's good to see my friend Sterling, and it's good to uh, it's good to be in a meeting. It's good to be out of my car. I, uh, you know what that's like, huh? And uh, you know, and um, if you're new, uh, my sponsor tells me that I'm living proof that a man can stay sober for close to 16 years and not amount to a damn thing. <laughs> so. I'm just moving right along, you know. <laughs> he says I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, I want to thank uh, thank Mike for picking me up at the airport and uh, holding the sign upside down that said my name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a good talk all the way from the airport to here, and all he talked about was sex. <laughs> Sex, sex, sex. God, I couldn't wait to get out of that car, man. <laughs> and uh, so it's good to be here. I, um, if you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, you probably think you're in hell, you know, um, close. <laughs> uh, but you're not in hell by any way that, you know, imagination. A uh, little story about hell. There was a guy that died and went to hell and uh, had the long face on it. A guy comes walking up to him and he says, hey. Why the long face? And the guy says, well, I'm in hell. And he says, oh, my God. He says, have you ever drank? And he says, yeah. Well, he says, you're going to love Mondays. There's whiskey, there's bourbon, there's scotch, there's gin, there's vodka, there's wine. And you don't have to worry about getting cirrhosis. Hell, you're dead anyway. <laughs> the guy says, yeah. He says, did you ever do any dope? And he says, a little. And he says, well, that's the kind of lion that got you here. He says, you're going to love Tuesdays. We've got heroin, we've got speed, we've got acid, we've got hash, we've got reds and whites, and you don't have to worry about overdosing. Hell, you're dead anyway, you know? He says, did you ever gamble? And he says, yeah. He says, well, you're going to love Wednesdays. We've got dogs, we've got ponies, we've got poker, we've got pan, we've got 21. You know, and you don't have to worry about going broke. Hell, you're dead anyway, you know? And uh, he says, do you love to smoke? And he says, well, you're going to love Thursdays. We've got pipes, we've got cigars, we've got camels, we've got kents, we've got cools, and you don't have to worry about getting cancer. Hell, you're dead anyway. He says, are you gay? And he says, no. He says, well, you're going to hate Fridays. <laughs> I believe that could be hell. <laughs> so you're not in hell. <laughs> um... Not in hell. And, and it's weird how we perceive Alcoholics Anonymous when we come here. And believe me, it's not what it appears to be. Uh, you know, to the untrained eye, it looks like we all get along. <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> little do you know uh, that you're sitting next to people you wouldn't have got loaded with. And, uh, and for some stretch of the imagination, because a miracle called Alcoholics Anonymous, you're in a room full of people you normally would not mix with. But yet, you're the only ones that listen to you and the only ones that you'll understand. And that's the thing that I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is no matter where we've been, what we've done, what we look like or where we're from, something happens in these rooms. Something happens in these rooms that hasn't been able to happen to you in any room in your life. And it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, and I hope you stay around long enough 
to feel and uh, learn this way of life and realize that you don't ever have to live that way anymore. If you're new, I know you're in a hell of a spot. I know you're in one hell of a spot. And that ain't the first time you've been in that spot. And that seems to be the tragedy of your life. You keep coming to in that spot. And no matter what you try, no matter what you do, no matter what ideas you come up with, you keep winding up in that spot. And I think the tragedy of the alcoholic is he keeps coming too. He wished he did it last night. God, I thought last night was it, man. I drank enough to float a ship, you know. And he keeps coming too and having to start that rat race all over again, you know. Uh, growing up, I, I got to, you know, seeing Sterling remind me of what happened to me a couple weeks ago. I, you know, I was a loser in high school. You know, and and uh, and I was I was the type of loser that my parents were always bringing people of my attention to compare me to, you know. And, you know, why can't you be like Joey or something like that? And in high school, there was this uh, uh, varsity quarterback, and this guy drove me nuts. You know, I mean, everywhere you look, number seven. You know, and uh, Coy Hall. You know, and uh, God, I remember being a freshman in high school, and. Uh, being thrown out of school for being drunk on campus. And me and my dad are sitting in the principal's office, you know, and my dad looks up at the board and he says, God, why can't you be like Coy Hall, Larry? My sophomore year, I'm being thrown out of a different high school for being drunk and loaded on reds, and I took a janitor's cart and I drove it into the library doors, you know. I had to get the book back, you know. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my probation officer and my dad, and the probation officer says, God, why can't you be like Coy Hall? My junior year, my sister starts dating this guy, and she brings him over. Sure enough, it's old number seven. <laughs> you know? My mom says, God, honey, why can't you be like Coy Hall? You know? My senior year, I'm in the Torrance Jail. I'm getting ready to do 90 days, and I'm looking at my booking slip, and then I look at the town newspaper, and it says, Coy Hall makes all pro CIF. You know? And I said, God, I wish I could be like Coy Hall. You know? Well, lo and behold, what goes around comes around, as they say in A&A. Uh, not too long ago, I'm in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm in my plumbing truck, and there, it seems like nowadays it's vogue that on every street corner, somebody's selling oranges or peanuts, or they've got this goofy cardboard sign that says, I'll work for food, like you don't, <laughs> you know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh <laughs> And this guy locks eyes with me. People are always locking eyes with me, man. You know, they always want to... Do I look like I need to be saved, for Christ's sake? So, you know, they want to lay hands on me, teach me tongues, save me. And this guy got this little sign, and I'm looking at this guy, and he starts walking over to my truck. I go, man, he ain't getting any dough. I've got two bucks in my pocket, and I'm the cookie lady, you know, and he ain't getting it, you know. And the guy locks eyes with me, and he comes over to the truck door, and he says, Larry? Larry Thomas? And I said... Coy, Coy Hall, man. God, I thought this guy had it made, man, you know. And I thought, man, if there was any justice in AA, I thought maybe my sponsor could shoot old Coy a letter saying, why can't you be like Larry? (laughs) So he's doing pretty good. uh... It was posted. It started at 8, huh? Okay. And uh, so anyway, um, you know, uh, I come from a good home. I was born in Detroit. I moved out to California when I was about four or five years old and uh, uh, had a, you know, stayed around a little foster home out there. I'm your basic white trailer trash, you know, and uh, I had a great mom. I had a Scandinavian mom, and my mom loved diet pills. My mom loved those green and white Dexies. She was always buzzing around the house around midnight, you know. And uh, I knew if I wanted any, any love or affection, I could find my mom in the garage around 3 o'clock in the morning sorting out nuts and bolts all night or something, you know. Or 
raking the neighbor's yard around midnight, you know, or the whole damn block, you know, and uh, and uh, just a busy lady. And my mom loved to, to, to crochet, you know. She was always making Afghans. She's just putting them out like a factory, man. And, and everything, on, everything in the house had an Afghan, you know. All the couches had Afghans. The chairs had Afghans. You'd, you'd go into the, to the garage, and my dad's golf clubs had these chipmunks that she knit, you know. And, you go into the bathroom, and sure enough, there was that pink poodle with the big button eyes that she just knit, the, you know, and just clicking and clacking all night long, man. And uh, her favorite thing was to make jigsaw puzzles. You know, my mom uh, used to take those Dexies and make these 4,000, 400,000 piece jigsaw puzzles in a night, you know. She'd go down to Savon's and get a carton of Raleigh cigarettes, you know, because they had the coupons on the back. And she would save that to buy more yarn. It was a hideous cycle she was caught up in, man. <laughs> And she'd get a carton of Raleigh's and get the, you know, this big old jigsaw puzzle and come home and eat some more Dexies and start smoking those Raleigh's, you know, and put that stinky peroxide on her hair that smelled like sewer gas, you know, and put that old moo on that was shiny in all the wrong places, you know, and start putting together this old jigsaw puzzle, you know. And she had a big pair of toenail clippers, so if she had a piece that didn't fit, well, she'd snip that son of a gun right down to it dead, man. Yeah. Right above my bedroom, you know, I had a picture of all these weird... I took one of those things when I was a kid, man. I swear to God, I took one of those Dexies and boom, man. I, I was in the next month standing still, man. Just, yeah, man. Just seeing black and white, man, you know. And that was the sun going up and down, man. You know, yeah, I got that froth on your teeth, you know, and... Running around the streets at midnight, you know, and helping mom with the puzzles, you know, and... Come on, let's go clean the garage! Yeah! You know, like, you know, I love that stuff, man. Jesus. And that diet was working. Hell, my mom was down to a stick. She was up in her eyes, and she 50 pounds, and blonde hair, just, you know, packing those lunches all night long. You know, and, uh, God, she loved me to death. I felt... I had two sisters that I felt sorry for, because my mom would chase them down like they were cattle. You know, there's something about women and blackheads. I don't know what it is, but she chased my sisters down and boom on the ground. She started drilling their faces, man. And and, and, and it must have been, she thought she was catching a fish because she'd get one and she'd go, "Do you need that? Do you need that?" You know, and hold it up like it was a prize catch. You know, and then my poor sisters were running around the house. You know, and uh, my sister, I, me and my sisters did not get along real well. Um, I, I mean, I always, I mean, I, I got the message at an early age that when that whenever there's one or more women together, they're laughing at me, you know. And uh, and I got that message early on, man, you know. And uh, and I got a message from my mom. My mom was a, a loving mom, but she was a worrier, you know. And whenever I'd want to go out to play football or baseball or, or go to the beach or something, she'd say, no, I don't think so. You're going to get hurt. And I got the message. I got the message, man. I'm not big enough for the job. She don't think I'm man enough to... She don't think I, I'm adequate enough to go do stuff and that's the message I got now I had a great dad I love my dad to death my dad was a refinery worker and my dad was a happy drunk my dad was a happy singing the blues Nat King Cole kind of drunk boy he was a miserable man when he was sober but he was a happy singing drunk man and um, my dad was a window climber he was always sneaking in and out of his own house around three in the morning, you know, and uh, in my bedroom window, I'd feel that old greasy boot, you know, on my chest as he's coming in, you know, and, and I grabbed that boot one day and I said, you know, geez, Dad, I said, why don't you have Mom make you a set of keys, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's up anyway, you know. I, I think I, I can hear the Hoover going now, you know. <clears throat> and... Uh, 
you know, I, I, uh, my dad told me at around 10 years old, he said that I was going to have a baby brother. And I started planning for that kid brother. Boy, I started saving those baseball cards and oiling up that glove and thinking about that kid brother. And nine months later, my dad came down to that same bedroom and told me that my baby brother died. Boom, that was it. Never trust what they say. And it was his fault. My dad was going to be on top of my list when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I hated that man for everything he stood for. I could not trust what he said, you know. And I knew I could never fit what he wanted me to be as a man. And I didn't trust what he said. And he reeked of responsibility. And if there's anything that's ever made me thirsty, it's been responsibility. I've been running from it my entire life. And, around, and, and that was my first confrontation with death. I've just been a little kid thinking I'm going to buzz around and live forever. And nobody told me what happened when you die. And nobody tells me what happens or what happened to my little brother. And I've become frightened to death of this thing called God at an early age. Because I'm thinking that he's coming around and taking little kids at midnight. And I ain't sleeping too well. You know, and I'm up all night, you know, afraid that something's going to happen to me. And I didn't sleep real good till I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, because I've always had that fear that something's going to happen to me in the middle of the night. And I don't know why that was. But 11 years old, there's four of us in a garage across the street, and we start passing around a bottle of Four Rose Whiskey. And man, for the first time in my life, man, I was able to muster up a feeling that was decent about me. And that's nothing I've been able to do on my own. Of my own, I can't think of a decent thing about me. Every little thing and every little thought about me is inadequate and rotten and no self-worth and you're not going to make it. Everybody else seems to be doing life with impunity. Everyday living seems to be a breeze for everybody, you know, and they seem to be content with everyday living. <laughs> Somebody's al here, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and I've never been content with everyday living. It's never been enough for me. And I've always grown up with that idea that whatever I'm doing isn't it. This ain't it either. And I took a shot of alcohol and it just took away all that, it took away that grinding that I've always had. And I was able to have a decent feeling about me. And there was a little bit of peace and happiness that come with it. And the effects produced by alcohol were something that I'll never forget because I wasn't able to muster up those feelings when I was sober. It took that little, it took Howdy Doody and turned him into James Dean in three drinks, man. And I loved it. I loved it. I loved the effects produced by alcohol. And, and that wasn't the first time that I got drunk. I've been sneaking in my old man's 102 beer and his Thunderbird wine for a long time. But that was the first time I did it with other guys and it made it all right. And it was the last time I ever shared. It was. I didn't know more of that either, you know. And, uh, and I love the effects produced by alcohol because whenever I would have to think about what I'm going to be when I grow up or what should I do after school or should I do my homework or any type of responsibility, the moment that I felt restless, irritable, or discontented, I knew I could take a shot of alcohol and it would all go away. And I've always wanted it to all go away. Whatever it was, I've always had something in me that I wished would go away. And uh, around, uh, around my freshman year in high school, I found a group of people that made me feel more a part of life than anybody did at that time. I found a group of people that there was bro brotherhood and camaraderie and, and joy and, and just a part of life. And it was the lowriders. And over in Los Angeles, what we used to do is we used to get our hair real big like an Arizona tumbleweed. And we'd lower our Chevrolet cars and go around driving around listening to the Temptations and the Four Tops and OJs and Marvin Gaye. And God, I loved it, man. I was in my plumbing truck last week and the Four Tops came on. I just started sinking in my truck. And I, I loved it, man. I had a little Mexican girl named Loopy and she used to curl her hair up real big. But she used to have a beehive and use these soup cans with those old noodles stuck in them, you know. And she'd curl her hair up real big and I'd get my hair up real big and we'd bounce around all night drinking that gin one what the hell you're staring at man what are you looking at you know and now i know man I, uh, 
know exactly what you're staring at. I ran into one of them the last Christmas. I'm over there in the Glendale Mall, man. I'm walking down the Glendale Mall, and there comes this kid, and the, and the kid's head is shaved like a cue ball, man. He's got everything in his face is pierced. He looks like a big safety pin, you know. He's got a tank top on. He's got these big drawers that you could put about five guys in. He's got three beepers. I walk by him, and he goes, what are you looking at? I says, I don't have a clue what the hell I'm looking at, man, you know. I don't have an idea what I'm looking at, you know, but I recognize the attitude, though, you know. These beepers went off, and I thought I won the jackpot, man. I, you know, and, uh, you know, it used to be different in AA. Nowadays, we get guys coming in AA, their heads are shaved and everything like that. We used to get guys in AA, and we used to tell them, you know, you know get a job and get a sponsor and get a commitment and, you know, get a haircut. Not so anymore. We got to get a job, get a sponsor, and goddamn, grow your hair a little, you know. Take, take that ball bearing out of your tongue or something, you know. Yeah, they got stuff tucked in their nose and stuff. Oh, man. Chain them all together. <laughs> Keep an eye on them, man, you know. Liable to go off any minute, man, you know. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it, it just... It just takes your mind off the book when you're talking to a guy and he's talking back to you and there's this damn ball bearing in his tongue. <laughs> just call me tonight, for Christ's sake, you know. When you get all that tools out of your mouth, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. God, just get a tattoo, you know. <laughs> so much easier, man. And, and, uh, and, man, we'd bounce around and I loved it, man. I loved it. I remember being a sophomore in high school and it was... Uh, they had a driver education class, you know, where they teach you how to drive like you haven't did it before, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I'm being kicked out of school, so I'm always having to take summer school. And so, uh, you know, I'm in this car, and I always got the biggest coach in the world in those cars, you know. And he says, all right, Thomas, get into the car. So I get my hair into the car, you know, and there's these three girls in the back seat. And he says, drive around the corner and parallel park. So I parallel park, and it's a hot summer day. And he says, well, you seem to be doing pretty good. He says, uh, drive over to the hamburger stand and go to the Jack in the Box and order some Pepsis. Yeah, it's okay, so I drive over to the jack-in-the-box, you know, and I totally forgot that 15 minutes before class, I took four of what they then called two-and-alls. And up to then, I'd just been a good kid. I'd just been drinking wine and doing heroin, you know, and minding my own business, you know. And some guy laid me on the floor of these two-and-alls, and Jesus Christ, man, they just knocked me out, man. You know, I, and I, I took them all because I didn't want to be caught with anything, you know. And, I, and one may not work, you know, so <laughs> God damn it, you know. You don't want anything left on you, you know. And uh, you ever notice that when you got caught, it wasn't your jacket? <laughs> hey, my jacket. I don't know where it came from. And uh, so anyway, I'm driving up. And he says, drive up there and order some Pepsis. Man, I totally forgot. And he says, boom, they nail me, man. My head starts buzzing around. I get that sweat going up there. I get that hypnotic glow. I look over there. There's about four coaches, you know. And uh, he says, what the hell? He says, talk to the puppet in order. You know, I, I can't see the puppet, man, I, you know. <laughs> All I can hear is that goofy kid going, can I have your order, please? You know, I'm like, God, I want to talk to him, you know. So I, I drive around to the menu, and I hear this big crash, and the old puppet's head hanging down, you know. That kid's hanging in there. You know, can I have your order, please? You know, I, I, I want to talk to him. You know, I want him to come out and be my designated driver, I think, you know. And the cops come, and they arrest me, and they throw me on the hood of the car. They shatter my hair all over the place, you know. And, and I don't drive till I'm 30. Well, big deal. There's nothing like driving shotgun. Just put me on the shotgun side of the car. You don't have to have a license. You don't have to worry about anything, man. All you get to do is just drink that cheap wine. And, man, I'd bounce around drinking that cheap wine, and Jesus, I loved it, man. And I discovered the most fantastic thing that an alky ever discovers, man. You want to you keep an alky in a room? Put a mirror in front of them. 
Oh, man, do we look good. Jesus Christ, man, I'd drink that wine, and man, my hair would get bigger, and my eyes would get bluer, and my God, are you good looking, man. You know, what are you doing in this Chevrolet? You know, you should be an underwear model, you know? God damn it, you know? You don't wear any, but what the heck, you know? Jesus, and I'd keep drinking that wine, man, and I'd look in that mirror, and Jesus, I'd have all those big chunks of sleep in my eye, you know, and have about 20 pounds of puke on my tank top, you know, and, man, and I feel foxy. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like dancing when I'm like that. I don't know about you, man. And I'd look in that mirror and put that 110-pound arm against that Chevrolet door and press it down and make it look big so you don't mess with me, man. And then we'd go out dancing, man, and sure enough, you'd go into the Revelair or the Grand, and man, there she is. She's in the back of the room, man, and her hair is all big, and it's smoking. They got cigarette butts stuck in it and everything, flies hanging on it, man, you know. All of her eyelashes are up and down different places in her face, you know. And your buddy says, Larry, I think she's all yours. <laughs> yeah, man, you bet she is. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it, man. I loved it. I loved the way I lived, and it was the only normal life. It was the only life I knew that ever made me feel that way. And every time I drank, it made me feel that way. I could take a half pint of that old granddad and just live forever. I loved it. I love the way that alcohol made me feel. And I couldn't stand the way I felt when I was sober. And the more I drank, the less I could stand sobriety. I couldn't stand sobriety. I couldn't stand the way I felt when I was sober. The way I felt when I was sober drove me to drink time and time and time again. In 1969, a bunch of people are going places. Some of my buddies are going to Vietnam, and some of them are going different places, and I wonder what I'm going to do with my life. So I thought I'd go back to Detroit, and I wound up in Phoenix. And I'm over there on Phoenix at North Central and Buckeye Road at the Apache Motel, up there on the third floor, wondering what I'm going to do with my life. I look down there at the Wagon Wheel Bar, and I said, well, maybe I'll go down there and see what the guys are doing. I go down there to the Wagon Wheel Bar, start drinking those Boilermakers. I hook up with these guys, and we start writing prescriptions and selling them. We start writing prescriptions for second all and two and all and Nembutal and Obertrol and you name it all. We wrote it all, man. <laughs> Went down to Tucson, started passing this paper around, and they finally caught up with me. And if you're ever loaded on barbiturates and whiskey, you know there's no freeway chase, man. It's just a matter of the sheriff coming to your motel room going, oh, there's a little son of a gun right there, and they just wheel you over to the car, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I did two and a half years down there in a, in a state, uh, state jail down there. And at the age of 22, I come out of there bound and determined that everything I've went through is because uh, I was a teenager. And I come back to California and I start being arrested for, uh, for drug overdoses, back, drunk and, and drug overdoses back to back. And my, uh, and my uh, probation officer is starting to think that they're suicide attempts. They catch me over there at a baseball field over there in El Segundo on a Sunday afternoon. And I'm stone cold sober and I'm hysterical and I'm maniacal and I'm stone cold sober. And I can't seem to keep my mouth shut and I'm just, I'm just going off. So they bring me to my probation officer, they take me to the Harbor General Hospital, and they tell me I need to go to the Camarillo State Hospital for a month to be observed. And I guess they like what they've seen, because they kept me there for 13 months. <coughs> that was a joy. <laughs> and after 13 months, they told me, like they told a lot of people in these rooms, that we're not going to operate out in society without some type of mood-altering chemical, without some type of mood elevator. And they gave me my little package of Thorazine, and they told me a psychiatrist to go see Two months later, I'm over there off of Union Station, Alvaro Street, over in Los Angeles by Felipe's. And I'm being picked up for being publicly intoxicated, a violation of probation, a public nuisance. Finally made it. Best that I could do is be a public nuisance. And they send me away up there for due 60 days. And I'm up there, and they're going to send us down to the South Bay Courthouse to get about 90 of us. And they put us in this big bus, and they send us down to the South Bay Courthouse in Torrance. And they're going to sentence us and have us do our time. And I'm in a room about this size. 
about four o'clock in the afternoon, there's nothing but me and bologna sandwiches. I got my little Vons bag and I'm going, I wonder where they're going to send me now. And at four o'clock in the afternoon, the little Scottish man with a patch stuck his head in that jail cell. And he says, I lad. He says, my name is Alex. Are you Larry Thomas? And I said, yes, sir. He says, come with me. You're going to AA. AA? I don't remember that being up north anywhere, you know. Where's AA at, you know? And I think, well, you know, where's this little Scottish pirate taking me, you know? And so I'm all ready for a long ride and maybe some lunch, you know. And the guy takes me six blocks away to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. 1975, I go to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all the way there, all this little guy did was talk about you. He talked about these people that were going to change my life. That's all he talked about. He was so happy I was going to meet you, man. He couldn't wait for me to meet you. He talked you up a storm. He says, kid, you're never going to have to do this again. This program is designed for guys like you, Larry. And he talked about you just unbelievably well. And he took me to that meeting. And in 1975, he took me to the Torrance Lameda Alano Club. And he walked me into this Alano Club. He introduced me to a lady named Indian Genie and Singing Sam and Serenity Sam and Captain Bob and Tennessee Bill and Bicycle Ray and Santa Claus Ray and Dancing Pete and Whistling Butt and all these other people, man. I said, I said my God, I just left a group of people like this, you know. And Louisiana, you know, <clears throat> Little Moose was from Louisiana and she come running down the hallway. Hi, honey. She says, my name is Moose and I'm expecting a miracle. I said, I bet you are, man. I, <laughs> I said, I'm not it. Believe me, you know. And, and then this big transvestite came out of the card room, you know, and he started swirling around me, and he put his little hands on my shoulders, or big hands. That don't matter, really, you know. He says, I can't wait to take you to a candlelight meeting. I said, I don't think so. <laughs> not for that first year anyway, you know. That... <clears throat> Let me get on my feet, big fella, you know. And I... I said, my God, if that's AA, I'm not sure I want to mess around here, you know. <laughs> what does that A stand for, you know? And I said, and I said if, you know, if that's the effect of that little blue book, I'm not sure I want to dabble in this stuff. And I immediately left. And from 1975 to 1982, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous on a regular basis. 30 days and get drunk. 60 days and get drunk. 90 days and get drunk. And the longest I could stay sober was because I was on heroin. And every time I came back, I wanted to stay sober. And if you're new, the biggest lie that I've ever told myself was that I was coming in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I hadn't touched Alcoholics Anonymous as I know it today. All I did is sit in another room and find out who I could use. All I did is sit in a room for an hour and a half and get miserable. All I did is sit in a room and believe some of the nonsense that floats around Alcoholics Anonymous that we hear today. Don't drink unless your ass falls off. Thirty days later, come back. No ass. <laughs> <laughs> If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd sit in these rooms and think I'd have to do nothing but, but sit here and something would happen to me. I'm a something-for-nothing guy. Alcoholics Anonymous is a place where you stay sober and you learn how to live a new way of life. But you're only going to get what you put into it. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, get prepared to do what you've been doing to people your entire life. Get prepared to be used. Your God's going to use you. He's going to use you. You're here for a reason. You're here to give. Your days of getting are all over. They're all over. It's time to give. He has saved you for one reason and one reason only. Because there's going to be some man that I'm not going to be able to touch that you will. And your days of giving are just started. And I had no idea. I'd sit in these rooms and wonder when I'm going to get mine. Get physically sober. Sit in the back of these rooms. Hear these guys like me with these ties on going, 30 days ago, I was on the streets of Los Angeles. 
Now I'm the president of the Bank of America. Thank you, you know. Uh, God damn, man, you know. I came in with that guy, you know. Sitting in these rooms, man, and doing nothing. And if you're new, sitting in a room for an hour and a half, if you're like me, is going to do nothing but make you so physically and mentally miserable, you will have to drink as you sit around and watch everybody's life flourish. And I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. Because I thought my case was different. And every time I come back, I used to think a bottom would keep me sober. I used to think if I got physically beaten enough, that that would be enough to keep me sober. I would remember my last drunk in times of need. I used to think, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I tell you, if you're like me, the longer you stay sober, we start picking apart that last drunk and it don't look so bad. That last drunk to me is not the sustainer. That last drunk to me was my motivator. That was the thing that drove me to you to get me to get a sponsor, to get me to take these steps, to get me to do these things I didn't think would work for me. That was my motivator. It wasn't my sustainer. It's never worked for me remembering my last drunk. I can't forget it. I'm always thinking about getting drunk. And that motivated me to do things that I thought didn't apply to me because I thought my case was different. And in and out of these rooms... And in 1980, there's a man doing his 12-step work. And every time I called Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody from central office would come and get me. And these guys were always clean and they were sharp, man. And they'd come and pick me up at a boiler room or a little motel or whatever, and they'd always ask me the same question. You ready to go to a meeting? They never asked me where I'd been. They never asked me what I was doing. Didn't you rob the Hawthorne Alano Club? They never said that. It was true, but they never said that, you know. They always asked me, are you ready to come back to AA? Are you ready to go to a meeting? And they looked like they had some order in their life. And in 1980, I'm up at the Don Hotel up there in Wilmington, up on the third floor, up Avalon and Broad. And I got the three most important things in my life. I got a hot plate and a hot TV. I got a half pint of bourbon cut in half, and i am got my little lawn chair, and i am got my rented clothes, and I'm, you know, watching Jeopardy so I could really feel like an idiot, you know. Every now and then you get one right, you know. Donald Duck. Yay! God, I am a smart man, you know. Ten o'clock in the morning on a Thursday and I hear this. Oh, my God, it's the landlord. Larry, it's Don. Jesus, that guy from AA. Man, I didn't even call him and he's coming over here, man. Larry, can I come in? I said, yeah, and he opens up the door. He goes, oh, my God, Larry, what's going on? You had 15 days. You had 15 days, Larry. You were going to be a janitor in the city of Lamita. There's some hope for you, new guys. He says, what's going on? I took a shot off of that PM bourbon bottle. And I told Don with all the sincerity, I said, Don, I, I start feeling sorry for this guy. I thought I was letting this guy down. I thought me getting loaded was shocking him. He says, hold on a minute, champ. He says, you're getting drunk isn't shocking me. Jesus Christ, he says, you're an alcoholic. If you don't apply this l- way of life to yourself, he says, you're going to drink or go mad. You're getting drunk doesn't shock me. You're going to shock me, he says, go get a job. <laughs> Jesus. I took a shot off of that PM bourbon bottle and I told that guy, I says, Don, I says, I don't want what you got. I don't want what you have. And if I ever get that bad, I'll know what to do. Just get the hell out of my room and let me do what I want to do. Let me do what I want to do. The cry of this alcoholic for my entire life. Let me do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. It'll be a cold day in hell before a drunk tells me how to run my life. Let me do what I want to do. And the moment that I said that, it struck a chord in the back of my neck that shot me back to 1967 when me and that man I couldn't stand were at it again. Me and the old man are fighting. 
My mom's crying. My sister's trying to pull us apart. And he's kicking me out of the house because I was caught selling dope at high school. And he's telling me, if you want to live that way and drink, get the heck out of my house. I've got two daughters and a wife to take care of. You're going to run that way of life. You do it on your own. Let me do what I want to do. It reminds me in 1972 when I'm coming out of that institution in Arizona. And a macho man doesn't have a place to go. And where do macho men go when there's no place to go? They go to mom's house. And the macho lowrider's on mom's couch. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning. And like the days of wine and roses, when Jack Lemon goes through that nursery and he starts tearing apart all those plants looking for that half pint, I start tearing apart my mom's place. I start with the kitchen and work all the way into the bathroom. And she starts coming down. Honey, what's wrong? And you know what's wrong. She stole my half pint. You know she stole it. And you know what they do when they steal it. They pour it out. And I couldn't find my half pint of old crow under the couch. And I start smacking my mom around till I get blood out of her nose. Demanding that she come up with that bottle. I know you stole it again. For me to pass out to wake up the next morning to see that it was in the trash can that I drank it. And there were times that we blacked out and there were times that we wished we were blacked out. And I can't, re- I can't tell you about the times. It just tears me apart to see myself, a 28-year-old man, sneak into my mom's apartment when she's living all alone, sneaking in and laying on her couch and my mom's trying to watch TV and I'm trying to, and I'm tore up again and I'm bloody and I've got those dirt and I've got that fill from my soul to the outside. And she puts my head on her lap and she starts rocking me. And I'm pretending I'm blacked out. And she starts crying. And I feel my mom's tears hitting my cheek. And she whispers a prayer. Dear God, watch over my baby boy. What am I going to do? God, I don't want to hear that. Don't say that, Mom. Don't say that, man. It ain't that bad. It ain't that bad, Mom. Let me do what I want to do. Reminds me of my best friend in Phoenix. He's ten feet away. And I'm stone cold sober. And he drowns because the only thought that I have is when he's gone, I get all of his dope. Let me do what I want to do Why I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous right now. Me doing what I want to do for as long as I can stand it. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I've got to be able to do something about my drinking. It would be the only normal thing left I could do to make me feel normal. Everything else about my life is chaotic and, and crazy. But if I could just control my drinking, I could be a man. Which is the very thing I'm not. Everything in me is cowardly and weak and cries of inadequacy and irresponsibility. And all that went through my head is the only answer to life I've ever had left my room, that little ball-headed carpenter. And from 1980 to 1982, I'm stuck with the memory of you. I'm stuck with the memory of these people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're having trouble staying, you may leave us, but we'll never leave you. Because somehow, someday, when you least expect it, you're going to be curled up in your car or curled up in your room and you're going to cap the seal off that smurdy and you're going to throw it back and you're going to think about that goof in Iowa with the tie on. Or one of them anyway, you know. (laughs) Hopefully the best looking. (laughs) I meant you. No, and... uh, Excuse me. And I couldn't get you out of my mind. And from 1980 to 1982, I'm stuck with the memory of you. I can't stay drunk and I can't stay sober. And I'm destined to live on the streets. I just, I just, just resign to that. And I do what you do when you live on the streets. You resign to that way of life. It's just the way it is. And you drink to die. And you wake up to start the madness one more time. And you where your insides match your outsides. Finally, you fit in. You're down there in the gutter where you know you belong anyway. 
Because what's the use, Larry? What's the use of trying? God's going to kill you anyway. What's the use, Larry? You're going to die anyway. Never being able to fulfill anything. Always be a 10% guy. Because the moment anything takes any effort, you say, what's the use? God's going to kill you like your little brother. What's the use of trying? Anybody can come to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when they feel good. My meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous are not based on my moods. They're based on me wanting to live and not die. I'm not here because of a good or bad mood. I'm here because of a way of life that I want. And if I don't come to you, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. And I, my hats are off to the people who are in this room whose lives are upset and array and everything in their life is going crazy and they're in these rooms tonight. Because when that pucky's hitting the fan and you're in these rooms, that's the only way I come to believe in Alcoholics Anonymous is riding through the storms, baby. And coming out that other end. I've never been able to have a belief. I could never believe an AA was working because the moment things would get tough, I'd leave. But when I started riding the storms and I started listening to my sponsor and finding these things and going through these fears and working through these problems and coming out the end, God dang it, man, that old man was right. I stayed sober and I got through it, man. Things are going to be okay. And I started coming to believe in this power called Alcoholics Anonymous that works only when I'm around. That AA doesn't make house calls. That I've got to show up for it. And that I hope I don't get that complacency in Alcoholics Anonymous. The cancer of AA that tells you you don't need to do the things you used to do. The cancer in AA that tells you that you're self-satisfied with your life while in the midst of danger. The house is burning up and you want a vacuum. <laughs> that complacency in Alcoholics Anonymous that tells you... I, I mean, if there's any mathematicians, come on up front. What do we got? We got 168 hours in a week. We have about 40 to 45 working. The other's sleeping. You go to four or five meetings a week. It takes about two hours per meeting. It averages out. You got about 55 hours of free time. And you got about 10 hours you give to AA. You sponsor this goof and he says he wants to start doing something extra. And what pile does he take out of? Let me take away from my meetings. Oh, I don't want to touch that 55. That's my time. And he starts chipping away over here. And you finally, and you see him unwind. And he starts, stops doing these little things that got him this, it's no longer necessary to call my sponsor every day. Maybe let somebody else make the coffee. And maybe I'll show up once a week. Maybe once a month. And pretty soon they wonder why their lives are rare. I'm not surprised. To me, the, the, the insanity of Alcoholics Anonymous, not people walking around here doing bizarre things. You want to know what's insanity? Stick around for a while and watch people raise their hands, concede to their innermost self that they're alcoholic, raise their little greasy hands, say that they're, yeah, I'm an alcoholic, and watch them feel like they can leave Alcoholics Anonymous and stay sober. That's insane for me, to admit that I'm an alcoholic and leave AA. That's total insanity. I am signing my death petition right there. And all this went through my head, man. And on May 2nd, 1982, I'm going by this, checking into the mission. I will go by the Woolworth window, man, and I catch eyes with the thing. He's 110 pounds and he's yellow. His eyes are cut because somebody tried to steal my shoes. I'm checking into the mission and I catch eyes with myself. I said, my God, what the hell's going on with me? All I ever wanted to be was a cameraman. Why am I always getting loaded and thinking about getting sober? How come there's nothing else going on in my life but those two thoughts? And I did what I always did when I got that way. I panhand some money and I called the central office. I get a hold of the central office and I, Don, this is Larry. And who, it's Don. I says, Don, this is Larry. I says, I'm ready to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I says, would you come and get me? I've just checked into the mission. And he told me the most profound thing I've ever heard in my life. He says, no, you little son of a gun. 
He says, you know where we are. You know what we got. If you want to get sober, you get your rusty rear down here yourself. I'm tired of chasing after you. He says, that sign says we care. He says, doesn't mean I'm going to take care of you. And he hung up. I said, my God. Whatever happened to that alien love I used to hear about, man? And I took the longest walk of my life, man. I walked from that, I walked from that mission to that Alano Club, which is about 11 miles, man. And I was about a block away from that Alano Club, and there was about four or five guys standing out that front of that club, and they start poking their arms and pointing at me, man, you know. And I said, oh, man, you know. And I walk up to that door, and the guy says, there's no food in there, Larry. He says, I know. I says, uh, I, I want to know if Don's in there. And they said, well, I think he's in there by the coffee bar. But we've got a meeting in a half hour, and you've been banned, so hurry up. So I walk into that club, and sure enough, there he is, that old ball-headed carpenter. He's sitting over there by the coffee bar, and he's got those sponsor eyes. You know what those are like. And he looks at me, and I walk up to Don. And for year after year after year, I'd call these people from Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'd ask them for a ride, and I'd ask them for a handout, and I'd ask them for a day's work. And I asked them something that I never uttered before in my life. I said, Don, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Would you be my sponsor? And the guy lit up like the sun for about five seconds. <clears throat> and then the sun set. <laughs> and he lit into me for about 20 minutes, man. He really put the wood to me. And he told me under no certain terms that he's going to put up with my nonsense. That if you want my time, you do the deal. You don't deal the deal, you don't get my time. He says, I got guys that I sponsor who are doing the deal. They get my time. You don't do the deal, you're wasting my time. And he says, I won't have it. And he showed me some meetings to go to, and I will go there. And he says, uh, and, uh, and be here tonight at the meeting. And so I stayed there in that club, and I shook out with the drunks, and I hallucinated with the drunks, and I puked with the drunks, and I heard the music with the drunks, and I went crazy with the drunks, and they stood me up that night, and I said, my name's Larry Thomas, I'm an alcoholic. And for the first time in my life, I felt like a member. For the first time in my life, you people were selling me sobriety, and I was buying. For the first time in my life, it didn't matter what kind of background, what kind of drugs, nothing. I was here for sobriety. You people taught me about these traditions. You taught me that we're here to talk about, we're here to, to recover from alcoholism. And that that's what we talk about here. Regardless of what we stuck in our arms and what kind of stuff, we talk about Alcoholics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous meetings here. We are here to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And we talk about alcoholism here. And, that, and after that meeting, I thought that guy was going to take me back to the mission. And he says, you're going to come home with me. And I says, all right, I get to live on this couch. You know, and he took me home and he pulled me up to the driveway and he had an abandoned car over there. He had a little Toyota that was all beat up and on the blocks. He says, get your ass in the car. <laughs> I said, take me back to the mission. <clears throat> he says, no, you get in the car. And he, and he slammed the door. And then he come back. And he opened the door again and he says, and while you're in there, hotshot, he says, you better find a God. And he slammed the door again. I said, my God, this guy's absolutely nuts, you know. I'm in a Toyota. Where am I going to find a God, you know? Is he in the glove compartment or something, you know? And about three o'clock in the morning, I, I was watching the trees breathe. And uh, I said, my God, I said, you know what? I said, I may have a ton of drunks left in me, but I never want to be new again. I don't ever want to be new again. I'll do whatever this bald-headed carpenter says, man, not to be new again. If he says go to Iowa, I'm going to Iowa, you know. It just, it just doesn't matter, man. You know, whatever he says goes, you know. I had no other ideas. I just did not want to go through that nonsense again of trying to run out any idea I had about staying sober. They were used up, you know. And it wasn't my longest drunk, and it wasn't the worst drunk I ever had. 
But newcomer, it was the one that drank away the debate of whether or not I was going to stay and do the things in AA or not. It was the one that washed it away. There was no longer any debate of whether or not I was going to do the deal here. Whatever that man said goes. And I don't like responsibility anyway. So here, yeah, you take my life, man. And he did. And he gave me some direction. And after about a year and a half sober, I started remembering all the phrases and I started working an honest program dishonestly. I had all my chips. I knew where all the dances was. I was doing the AA light. Less meetings and more dances, you know. <laughs> Wondering why I'm, I'm restless, irritable, and discontented. And just doing enough to get by. I never drank that way, but here I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, just doing enough to get by. And a year and a half sober, a man came down to that club and he did a talk and he told me what I was in front of all those people. He says, Larry, he says, you're a taker. You're a user of people. You're a loser. He says, there's a triangle in Alcoholics Anonymous, Larry, called Unity, Service, and Recovery. He says, there's another triangle and I hope you find that. And I followed that man. I followed that man and he's my sponsor today. I followed that man to my home group, which is the Bellflower Big Book Group of Bellflower, California. And those are the two most important things in my life. Not because of who they are, but because of what they've introduced me to. They've introduced me to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous its entirety. And it's total entirety. And I guarantee you, if you're new, that what I do in between meetings is going to constitute whether I stay sober or not, just as much as the ashtrays I pick up here and the hands that I shake. What I do when I'm away from you as everything to me to being a member of AA without telling anybody I am. How I conduct myself at work, at home, and at play has everything to do with me being a good member. But I've got to come here. This is where it all starts. And my sponsor, God bless that man, my sponsor's name is Johnny. And I love that man because he taught me about this thing called respect for the thing that was saving my life. He taught me about a thing of respect for a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. That you'll wear your sobriety, Larry. And he taught me about getting commitments and sponsoring guys and making amends and we went through that inventory and my whole life I had my parents totally wrong I had them all wrong man see I'm the type of guy who needed to feel special his entire life people treat me average it's not enough you got to treat me special for me to feel average I'm the type of guy who does eight hours of work and I think the boss is up in the office going oh man this kid something man he just did eight hours of work boy they don't make him like that anymore you know you know, Jesus, doing average things, expecting standing ovations, man. You know, doing what you're supposed to be doing anyway and thinking that there's going to be a parade because you didn't, you know, flip anybody off today or something, you know. You know. And, uh, and that's the way it was. Uh, and he taught me all about this thing called life. He taught me how to grow up. And I was making my amends to my mom. And I got to set that mom down. And I got to talk to my mom. And you people talk to me about the very spirit of these things called amends. That it isn't just a one-shot deal. It isn't just shooting down a letter. It isn't just one setting. That the very spirit of these amends is just the start. That if I'm promising my mother and making amends to my mother for certain actions, I'm not only going to try not to do it to her anymore, anybody else. If I'm going to be making amends for, for lying and stealing and cheating, does that mean it's okay not to do it to them, but it's okay to do it to them? Is that the spirit of the amends? I don't think so. That's not what you people taught me here. And I sat down with that mother. And that mother who I'm not supposed to even hold anymore. That the first thing that I did when I come to this, this convention this weekend was I go and I get postcards. Because I send my mom postcards of where I go so she knows where I'm at because I love to write her. And I get to go up to Monterey where my mom lives. 
And every now and then, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous takes place. She lets me in the room. And she lays her head on my lap. And I get to rock my little mom with her emphysema. Is why the tears run down my face and drop onto hers. And I said, Dear God, be with my, my mom. Help her have one more day of peace. You see? I get to meet with that old man who I couldn't stand because he reeked of responsibility. That's the only reason why I hated him. Is a man because he was giving me an example that I knew I couldn't live up to because I didn't have it in me and I didn't want to let him down. And five years ago, this guy's getting a fibrillator put in there. And he has me on his hospital bed. And with his 130 pounds and his little frail hand, he grabs my hands and he says, Kid, you know, don't wait till I'm dying to come see me. He says, you know, for 15, 14 years, he says, Larry, he says, I haven't had to worry about you. He says, that's a, he says I can't tell you what that makes me feel like. And me and my old man are tight. We're tight. We talk to each other all the time and I had them all wrong, man. I wished that I could be half the man my father was to me. I wished I could be as consistent as responsible. And believe it or not, that's what the men of Alcoholics Anonymous have been trying to tell me because I couldn't listen to anybody else, but it took the drunk to talk to the drunk to teach me how to grow up and be a man. Where now I can stand next to a man who's 45 and I actually feel 45. I'm used to standing next to men my own age and feeling 10. And you people taught me that if I act like a man, I begin to feel like a man. And at 10 years sober, I've got the secret. I'm sitting in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I've got a secret and it's making me thirsty. And I'm not telling anybody. And that is I can't hold a job. That at 10 years sober, I can't hold a job for three or four months without stealing and get copping the attitude and quitting or getting fired. And I'm going to pick up my baby girl on visitation. And my baby girl will come running down the hall to me and she'll hop up in my arms. And then I'll see a torn sock. And I'll see some underwear that's torn. And I go, that's my fault. That's my responsibility. When am I going to see that me not holding a job is starting to affect this little girl? When am I going to ask for help? When am I going to ask the men of Alcoholics Anonymous how you hold a job? And so I went to my sponsor. And me and Johnny talked and he gave me some techniques and some very simple instructions. And then he took off one weekend. And I went over and I started to talk with my grand sponsor. And me and Clancy were in the office. And I started telling Clancy about what was going on. And he gave me some things to do. And he gave me a stack of papers. And he says, Larry, take these to my secretary. And I walked him over to the secretary and I came back. And the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous took place. For the first time in my life, somebody who I respect and who had authority told me to do something. And I didn't debate it. I didn't say, why me? I didn't say, why don't you have her come and get them? I didn't say, you're not too busy. Why don't you take them? You know, <laughs> for the first time in my life, I did something without debate and I came back. And I said to myself, if I can do that to the man who signs my check, maybe my baby girl don't have to have holy socks. And from that day to this day, I went out and I got a job. You know, what are you going to do with a guy like me? I have never been from nothing. I know nothing. Alcoholics Anonymous made me a plumber. They took me right out of the gutters and stuck me in the sewer, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and for the past five years, that little girl has never been without. For the past five years, that little girl will come and, and she lives in Arizona now and I live in Los Angeles and I drive over and I see her every five, six weeks. And I, and I, I send her the postcards and I, and I write her letters, not on legal paper. I get her that Pocahontas paper, you know. And I write her letters. And last weekend I went over and seen her. And that little girl brought me something. She says, Daddy, I want to show you something. And she brought me a folder, a plastic folder, 
with laminated pages of every postcard and letter that I ever wrote her. <laughs> she's been saving every little card. And I've been thinking she's going to forget me. <coughs> and you people taught me how, how to remain in her life. She won't forget me if I do what you tell me to do and I show up. I may not be somebody's husband anymore, but I'll always be somebody's daddy. And it's my responsibility to make sure she never forgets that. And I love that baby girl. And she loves her daddy. And it feels good to be a responsible member of Alcoholics Anonymous and hold my head up high and know that I'm doing what the men in these rooms are doing. If you're an old-timer in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm here to tell you thank you. Thank you for giving me this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm of a new generation of AA. And I'm here to tell you that I have no intentions of changing this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing in me that wants to change this beautiful program that you've given me. And I'm here to share with you that your efforts haven't been wasted. My primary purpose is to carry the message of alcoholic and help the man who suffers. And you taught me about this thing called unity. I may never come back to Iowa, but I think I'll be able to stay sober. It'll be tough, but I think I'll be able to do it. But I better show up to that Monday night meeting. I better show up to that Wednesday night meeting, and I better show up to that Thursday night meeting, and I better show up to my Saturday meeting where I belong, where I am one among many. They don't care that I'm a speaker. They want their coffee made, for Christ's sake. <laughs> because that's my function. Is to, I, love the, I love this tradition of unity. Unity is not a thousand people in a room. That's chaos. Unity is when we get people in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and we show them that everybody's doing the same thing. When that new guy comes in, he gets a sponsor, he works the steps, he gets commitments. And everybody he goes to gives them the same info. That way, everybody he goes to, he gives them the same info. And if he want, doesn't want that, he's got to leave. And we're just pounding him. Everybody he turns to, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get his steps. And that's unity to me. Everybody doing Alcoholics Anonymous and the guy's blinded with the same answer. It's very obvious to him what he's got to do. And it's my job as a member of my home group to make that, that meeting just the gem that it was when I got there. Because together with you making your coffee and setting up your chairs and being secretary and being literature, together we make this atmosphere so comfortable that when that man or that woman is so shaken and afraid, they can come into a meeting called Alcoholics Anonymous and they say, you know what, man, maybe I can do it here. These people seem to be having fun here. They seem to be smiling and scratching and farting and I think I can do it here, man, you know. I think, I think I can do it here. They're not just talking about stop drinking. They're talking about staying sober and a brand new way of life. And, buddy, that's what I wanted. I wanted a brand new way of life. And I didn't know I could have it here. I thought it was just about not drinking. It's about staying sober. And today when I think about staying sober, the idea of drinking never enters my mind. Today when I think about sobriety, I think about the way I live. I think about the people in my life, and I think about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I can't stop thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous without thinking about my God, and I can't think about my God without thinking about you. You've, I've come to believe in this power in these rooms, and though I may not be able to put a picture on it, and I may be able to put a face onto it, by golly, I can feel it. I may not have found him, but I found his kids, and that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me, because you people are proof that this program works. We've got a lot of promises in that book and the one I love so much is the one that says it works. It really does. And if you're new, I hope you're desperate. I hope you're so desperate that you do things that you know won't work for you and may God be with you. But more important than that, I hope you do the things that are in this room and that find that loving God that's expressed himself and will continue to express himself, I'm sure, all weekend. 
and do those things that you know won't work for you and come to find this loving God in Alcoholics Anonymous and come at peace with yourself and everybody around you. Come and join this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. All my life, people have been trying to do something for me from the head down. Let's change his mind. Let's change his behavior. Let's change his actions. Let's, let's change his thinking. And if you're new, we don't want your brain. You don't even want your brain, man. And Alcoholics Anonymous has trained something that it was the only decent thing I had I left. And when I'm standing in that shower and I'm going, I'm not going, I'm not going, I'm not going, Mike's going to be there, Steve's going to be there, I'm not going, I'm not going. Hi, my name is Larry, I'm an alcoholic. You people have trained my feet. You people have trained my feet. When my head's saying I'm not going, my feet are saying you're going. And my head's always dominated me, man. I got the most beautiful life. My little girl called me before I left and she says, Daddy, I'm having trouble with school. She says, the kids are making fun of me because I'm so smart. She said, did that ever happen to you? <laughs> and like any good alky, I said, hell yeah. <laughs> happened to me today. So if you're new, my sponsor Johnny tells me that it's God's great privilege for you to find his kingdom. It is. But it's Alcoholics Anonymous' great promise that you find it right here. You're going to find it here. And by golly, come back and tell us how you did it. It's been a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my life with you. And have a great weekend.